to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. G.X. Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. Hey, before we get started with today's show, I just want to draw your attention to new merchandise. Funkin' Stuff and Truth and Rhythm designs are in, and they look pretty darn cool. So show your support, help support the program, and show off some stylish merchandise and apparel. Only at the Funkin' Stuff store. I'm delighted to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership recording engineer, producer, and inventor, George Massenberg, a four-time Grammy winner who for the past 45 years has been involved with more than 400 records. That includes Earth, Wind & Fire's output from 1975 onward, and that group's associate acts of the Emotions, Denise Williams and Ramsey Lewis, also jazz fusion giants like Herbie Hancock, Weather Report, Stanley Clark, and David Sanborn, Great bands like Average White Band, Tower of Power, Journey, Little Feet, and Toto. And mainstream stars like Linda Ronstadt, Randy Newman, Dolly Parton, Bonnie Raitt, Cher, Billy Joel, Roy Orbison, Carly Simon, Neil Diamond, and even Frank Sinatra. His George Massenberg Labs is a pioneering audio electronics company that has released many innovative recording technologies based on his original designs. Currently, he's an associate professor of sound recording at the Schulich School of Music at Montreal's McGill University 
and a visiting lecturer at Berkeley College of Music in Boston and Valencia, Spain, and also at Tennessee's University of Memphis. Impressive resume, George. How are you? Welcome. I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Scott. This is this is great. This is great. Great to be with you. Great to be with somebody whose heart is in R&B. I got to tell you. <laughs> That's for sure. That's me. Um, and uh, where are you coming to us from today, George? I'm in my apartment in um, uh, Le Plateau in Montreal. It's just uh, off the mountain. It's a 10-minute walk to school. And uh, it's a big space with tall ceilings. And I've set up my, my remixing control room here because I'm in the process of doing a, a lot of immersive mixing. 714 mixing and doing a lot of experiments and trying to figure out where the where the bodies are buried in the technology and and to try to do this and you'll appreciate that as much as recording and mixing have changed over the years what the requirement is for immersive mixing is that we get back to doing good mixes high quality mixes not just pressing buttons on plugins but but mixing you know this thing where you grab grab a fader and move it you know that's mixing this thing where you hit in out on plugins that's bullshit so follow, follow me mixing bullshit mixing you got got the picture bullshit i think i so, think so yeah we'll, we're we'll trying to get back to get back to putting your hands on faders and immersing yourself in a performance. And just what Al Schmidt says when, when asked, um, Al, how do you mix? He says, I don't, I don't know. I just turn knobs so it sounds right. <laughs> Trial and error. There you go. Trial and error. Um, and George, you got started at such a young age. You know, what I did. What drew you to, uh, you know, being in the audio and being into equipment and all that? I was, I was uh, from a young age, eight or nine, a trombone player. So, and my family was musical. My mother uh, would take us to, when we moved to Baltimore, to hear the symphony and operas. And there's that. And um, played in marching band in high school. That was a miserable experience. Um and and always toyed around with electronics there's something magical about music moving through wire as ed cherney would say and uh that we can do things with it you know we can make it bigger and smaller and and as a and i started young um you know i was a sort of a baby technician when i was 10 or 11 and uh built things. And then when I was uh, 13 or 14, I met a guy uh, who moved down the street named Dean Jensen of Jensen Transformers. And he and I got into photography and ham radio and eventually kind of got into recording because a friend of his had an Ampex uh, 601-2. And um, so I got interested in recording and became friends with the local recording studio. This is going to be a long story. Let, let me cut to the chase. Uh, I've been doing it for a long time, but my first experiences in recording music were in this little two-track studio in Baltimore. 
uh, Baltimore. I don't think we mentioned it, but that's where you hail from. And uh, how, how long were you in Baltimore, actually? Well, I was different places. We were we traveled all over because my uh, father was an Air Force uh, doctor, surgeon, and uh, he was a surgeon and he got his uh, he did his residency at University Hospital in Baltimore. But we moved around a lot to Philadelphia and to Illinois and Macon. I spent a good hunk of my childhood in Macon, Georgia. And I'm emotionally closer to Southern music than anything else. I mean, that's my years there were when you turned on the radio and just raw sex would pour out of the radio from the early R&B, the bird groups. And, and it was just a great time for radio. It was great. So I sort of carried that experience with me. And then we came back to Baltimore and went to Johns Hopkins for a year and a half. Uh, I'm a terrible student, and I, I failed miserably. Um, but was already designing electronics and building my own idea of what a console would look like. Did you I have did. other other people in your family that were into electronics too? Because for me, I grew up, my grandfather was a complete audiophile, and he yeah. really got me into sound and audio and equipment and, and all that sort of thing. Nobody, Nobody in my family had the foggiest idea and had, didn't have the foggiest idea what I was doing. You know, I was, I was weird. My mother really didn't take me seriously until well into making records. Uh, I was doing the Ronstadt records and we opened uh, What's New, uh, the first of the Nelson Riddle records, Radio City Music Hall, and we flew her to New York and got her fourth row seats and introduced her to Nelson Riddle. and. And then uh, she kind of figured it out that maybe I was going to be okay. You made it legitimate. And then she started borrowing money from me. No, <laughs> <laughs> so, George, yeah. you know, I know you got with Earth, Wind & Fire in 75. Uh, you were very young, still a teenager, right? No, I turned uh, 30. In, um, I was born in uh, 1947. So I was in my 30s when I came back to the U.S. But I mean, the whole story is uh, during the Nixon years, I just couldn't stand being in the U.S. anymore. And I met a girl who was going back to France. So out of the blue, I moved to France and worked in freelancing. And, and France had an apartment in Paris for a little more than a year. We kept the apartment and I always wanted to go back. But I flew back to do a bluegrass group in uh, 75, I'm sorry, 73, and then flew back to do Little Feet uh, later that year at a studio I had built in Baltimore called Blue Seas. And uh, after Little Feet and going to Hollywood to mix and hanging out with Lowell George, my life changed dramatically. And the manager of Little Feet, Cavallo Ruffalo, asked me to do, consider working for Earth, Wind & Fire. So that's when I came back to do That's the Way of the World in, uh, at Caribou Studios in Nederland, Colorado. So for myself and a lot of viewers and listeners of this program, you know, that's a seminal record, you know, for sure. That's the one that really put Earth, Wind & Fire into a whole new category and launched them into their superstardom. 
Um, I wore that record out and unbelievably the same year gratitude came out in the same calendar year. And I wore both of the grooves out on, on those records. What do you, what do you remember about that experience and, and what was it like, you know, working with them? Well, I've told this story before, but you'll indulge me and, and just stop me if, if you've heard it before. But early on, I mean, I was engineering on earphones. I carried cost electrostatic earphones between studios in, in Paris, in Europe. And so I brought them back. So I got to the studio a couple days before the group did and started looking around at their instruments. Their instruments were kind of horribly out of tune. Then none of them knew how to tune, at that point, knew how to tune the bridges. So went through the instruments, tuned the instruments, got the drums set up, tuned the drums, made sure we had fresh heads on the drums, and, uh, and then proceeded to do a classical recording of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, and the first experience, this is, I think, in Maurice's book, was the group came into the control room, and I'm in a, a Hidley room. And uh, very polite levels. And the group keeps glaring at Maurice and, and uh, finish that playback, and Al McKay motions to Maurice, and they go outside for a band meeting. And, um, and, uh, and I'm fired, except Maurice doesn't tell me. He comes back in the room and says, uh, look here, man, play it back again, but turn, turn it up. And turn it way up. So uh, in the Hidley room, you had quads set up front and back. So fed it to front and back speakers and turned it up to 11. And he got the room dancing and they, and it was really punchy because I'd done a proper kind of acoustic mix. And this is before a lot of compressors, so I really had to ride the playback. And so I got the gig uh, after, after I turned it up. But the, the band tried to fire me. Um, and Maurice defended me and we made the record. And I mixed it. And it was really unusual mixing. It was unusual recording because it's the first time you really had that kind of brilliant brass. And, uh, and I was a trombone player, so I knew how to record brass. And, um, and I came out of R&B, so I had that language. I knew about chess records where Maurice had, had grown up. And Charles Stepney, who was really the heart of Earth, Wind & Fire, the arranger, producer he was the guy that that i stayed around for and then he died and that was tragic uh but but i, I was able to have a conversation about music because i just love bebop and knew a lot of the records like when we did uh the arrangements on that's the way of the world it was this uh soundstage the warren brothers music one soundstage the harp player was dorothy ashby and I'd, I had had, I owned all of Dorothy Ashby's records. The, uh, the percussionist was, uh, was uh, what's his name? The current head of the Recording Academy's dad, Harvey Mason Sr. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was a great percussionist. And so, and the, the bass player was, one of the bass players was Red Calendar. So, I mean, I was in heaven doing string overdubs. And of course, I knew how to do orchestras because I had done a lot of work with the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra doing FM remotes. I cut my teeth with orchestras in, in, at the old Lyric Theater. So um, a lot of that early experience, they, they, they were working with somebody that they'd never imagined could bring something to 
this thing. And it was a different sound. We created a different sound. It was a different sound. And it changed Hollywood, you know, that much. I'm not going to say I invented anything, but it you could tell that other people were trying to sound like us. And, of course, everybody was trying to hire me, and I kept saying no. Um, but they were, it was a, a heady time driving down Sunset Boulevard and every button on the radio, and I'd hear it, a Ramsey Lewis or an Emotions or an Earth, Wind, and Fire. I'd hear a record that I'd mixed. That's pretty heady. Yeah, I can only imagine. Um, and the sound, you know, I first heard Shining Star, you know, the way that was mixed, and, um, it was incredible. It just uh, exploded out of the speakers. And it was really unusual. But the thing that I brought to Earth, Wind, and Fire more than anything else was the vocal sound. And I never really did get credit for that. But the three of us worked for days in the studio piecing together those vocals doubling and tripling and and i was the pitch reference i had a early peterson strobe tuner and i was the guy that made sure they were singing in tune never got any credit for that which is all right you know george marshall the creator of the marshall plan after world war ii and and rebuilt europe famously said there's much you can accomplish if you're not so concerned about taking credit mm -hmm. And Stepney actually was the one that, that tried to change my mind about that, that you have to have a credit on the back of the record as much as possible. Because up but, until that point, I was using weird names. You know, I've had um, Larry Dunn and Philip Bailey have been on the show, and they give you so much credit for being an architect of that sound, along with Maurice. Well, and well, Larry in particular, and we're still friends. And I still talk to Larry every few weeks. Philip, I haven't talked to Philip at length since we did the Phil Collins stuff. I mean, just chatting him up and saying, I'm Verdino, say hi. We run into each other, but Larry's the one I stay close to. So, you know, for viewers that are not clear on it, um, you know, and you're kind of talking about that, you're hinting at it with the, the credit part of it. You know, where does the producer responsibility uh, end and the engineer responsibility pick up and where do they intersect? Well, here was here was the challenge because Maurice, this is the first record, the big record that Maurice produced. And the polarization of the relationship in the studio between, I'll just say it, blacks and whites was was not helpful. That um, that uh, the last thing that Maurice wanted was that a white person had crafted this record. And yet there was nothing he could do about it. You know, I was, I was basically doing track allocation, you know, the guys would come and say, hey, hey, hey man, give me a track, you know, until we were out of tracks and I had to figure something out. So I had to do track management. This is way before Pro Tools, way before dual machines. And so, you know, I had to figure that out as a non-credited producer, figure out how to get Maurice's ideas down on tape. And I was a nice guy. I was a lot sweeter back then than I, than I am now. I've gotten much crouchier. But uh, You're entitled now. <laughs> well, I don't think any of us are entitled to be mean, and I was a mean guy to work with for a while, but that's all past. Uh, what what I had had in my mind's ear 
was this classical sound coming out of classical. And that extended to the way instruments meshed and worked together. And we went to great lengths to mix these things where I'd reach for licks and reach for parts and understand the horn parts. And that meant turning them down as well as turning them up. And occasionally, I had to get rid of stuff. I had to, I had to get rid of performances that, that I, I couldn't use as a mixer. And you know, so Maurice would come in and say, hey man, I thought we'd put a guitar in there. I said, oh fuck man, I'm so sorry I erased it. Listen, uh, let's call him and I'll get him back in and we'll redo it or something like that. We never did. But uh, I, I generally had to, the, the automation was me moving as fast on a console as I could possibly move. And there are better mixers than I. Bill Schnee, if you haven't read Bill Schnee's book, read Bill Schnee's book and read Al Schmidt's book. These are my, these are my icons. These are the guys that, especially Al, especially Bill, the both. Bill is the dances on a console, showed me what dancing on a console looked like. Because we had to do everything, you know, one hand on the lead vocal and the other hand on the horn master, reach over here, get a background lick, reach over here, get a guitar lick, and do were all you, that live. Were you doing any of the physically editing of tape also, or was that Oh, somebody? yeah, big time, especially on Gratitude. A lot of that stuff, and right up through Faces, this last record we did, I put, um, I put tracks, I created songs. I put tracks together on two inch from pieces. And I'm trying to remember the tune, but I never got credit for that either. I'm trying to remember the tune that I pieced together on, on faces that was just splicing tape ripping through the machine every four measures. Uh, yeah, we did a lot of two track editing and a ton of multi track editing. Yeah, you bet. How, how do you think uh, fundamentally the sound evolved, you know, from when you first got involved with them to, let's say, um, you know, up to when Stepney was still with us and then post-Stepney? Well, after the record, I had a little bit more credibility with the group um, because it was, I mean, everybody else was telling Maurice how great it was. And uh, I'm sure he thought it was all his idea. But uh, they did give me a little bit more room uh, to try things. So on things like Getaway, where Larry Dunn and I would get to the studio early and get a big synthesizer and play around on synthesizers, or, or even more on All in All. Um, um, oh, what was the tune? Fantasy. Fantasy. Um, Larry and I basically put together. You know, that's a half-speed piano at the top that, that uh, Larry and I did together. And a lot of the synth stuff on that, Larry and I did. And it was something that Maurice didn't really have a lot of patience for. Um, and then, uh, and I forget who, the, who was the arranger on Fantasy. It was Jerry Peters. But uh, they had these really interesting arrangements, but really had to call them call them out and so i did and that's that's pretty heady you know when you have to clean up you have to clean up this arrangement because you can never get to that many faders so i had to erase things and erasing your orchestra without a backup 
was something I can't believe I did as much as I did. But something got in the way, I just erase it. It was a palette. The tape was a palette. All in all, days, my personal favorite is all in all. I thought that that should have won more Grammys. That that year was the year I, I bought the great tuxedo and showed up and Steely Dan won for a single that was nowhere near the size and shape of all in all. And um, that, that, that record was a real disappointment because again, nobody really gave me credit for doing anything. And that began, that was the beginning of the end. So the last record I did for them was Faces. Uh, and the last single I did was Let's Groove Tonight. Uh, and I, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And I'll still do that. I mean, somebody say, say how, how could you walk away from that? And I kept saying, listen to boom, chuck, kaboom, boom, chuck, kaboom, chuck, kaboom, boom, chuck, kaboom. Over and over 500 times, no, 5,000 times. And I just couldn't do it anymore. And also the writing, you know, these, the writers, and this story can be told, is writers would bring stuff, Skip Scarborough and the other writers would bring stuff in. And Maurice would add a, a chorus and take third, third writing participation. You know, he'd, he'd get in front of him and go, yow, and uh, take a piece of the song. And that, that was not a good reputation to have because writers did not bring him their best stuff anymore. And he thought he could write it. I, I, I'm sorry to say, I don't think he's, he was that good a writer. I think uh, Larry feels he should have gotten some more production credits too. Larry so. definitely should have gotten production credit. Absolutely should have. Absolutely should have. And, and when Larry would go off and do independent projects and ask if I could work with him, Maurice would go to Larry and say, you can't use my engineer. So I was, I was, you know, at some point in that cycle, an indentured service. And at some point, we were doing overlapping an emotions record and a Denise Williams record, and they were working me double time. I was doing two shifts a day and just fried to a crisp. Uh, and eventually just had to say, I can't do that can't expect me to do that. I start making mistakes. Um, Did they invest as much time and effort in like the Denise Williams and Emotions records? Because at least the first one or two of those were very strong also. Well, there, there were two that um, were strong. The one that we did in Chicago, I mixed, and it was very good. And then best of the one with Best of My Love. Best of My Love is probably the best mix I've done on, on any record. It's really a good mix and it's all live. But I started that record. Maurice was out on the road and Clarence McDonald and I, the keyboard player and I, started that record, the emotions record, because Maurice wasn't around. And uh, as soon as Maurice recognized oh, that, that this is, uh, so everybody takes credit for Boogie Wonderland, but uh, I mixed that. I mixed the first, the first extended disco version of Boogie Wonderland. And uh, the management gave me a car. Hmm. Um, 
The uh, yeah, Wanda Wanda was on the show. She was such a delight. Wanda, uh, sweetheart. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it was fun working with them. I'm guessing they were great singers and pure pure church and singing from the heart. They were great. And that uh, Denise Williams record, Free, especially, it was just oh, a terrific recording. Free, and what was the other one? Don't Tell My Neighbors. Uh, mm -hmm. That uh, was The Emotions, yeah. That was The Emotions. No, Don't Tell My Neighbors was The Emotions. I got that mixed up with uh, Denise. Okay, so I'll try to remember some of the other Denise stuff. But, you know, Free, that was the heart of Charles Stepney. That part in da -la -da, da 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 the vibes, piano part. That was just brilliant, you know, his counter, counter melody. My God, did, did, did I love that guy. Uh, and then he and I got to do a McDonald's commercial together. We got to do the beginnings of You, You're the One campaign for McDonald's. Because, I mean, that's, that's, that was his mainstay before Earth, Wind & Fire started making money. He was doing Chicago commercials. <laughs> and I loved that. That was great. What else did we do? What else was on that Denise Williams record? Free was the breakthrough sound. That was amazing. Yeah, I can't think of them right now, but I certainly know other ones too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, how long would some of those sessions go that you'd have to be in there working with them? I mean, were they 12, 14, 16 hour sessions? Sometime? Well, first you never knew when Maurice was going to show up. When we, uh, when we had tracking, you never knew when Freddie was going to show up and until David Foster started uh, being a part of the band and the guys pretty much had to show up on time. Uh, so it started, uh, tracking usually didn't go that long, but uh, overdubbing, overdubs and mixing would uh, just go till it was over, whatever that took. I don't, I don't, I don't even remember. It wasn't Stevie Wonder length sessions. I mean, you've heard of Stevie Wonder and guys had to hang for 36 hours because he had no nighttime. So yeah, or or Prince or somebody like that. Yeah. Well, and I, I knew I, I knew Prince because he was part of that same management group. And actually, Prince was the guy that you would point to that could do it all, could conceive of a record, sit in front of a console. Susan Rogers would get him set up, and then she'd go away, and he'd finish a record. They wanted yeah. Maurice White to produce him at first. No, he, that, that would never happen. Uh, Phil Collins wanted to produce Earth, Wind & Fire, and that would never happen. One he did the, get their horn sound, though. Well, and that was one of the most fun records I did was uh, Philip Bailey's uh, Chinese Wall record and working with Phil Collins on Easy Lover. That, that, was, uh, that was great. What made it so much fun? Phil. Oh. And, and the cats. I mean, we had... Um, uh, Nathan East and uh, a young woman playing keyboards who had no idea what she had stumbled into. And Phil had brought back a DX7 and didn't know how to use it. So I spent three or four days learning how to program a DX7 and did that, wrote that bright, what I call bright roads sound. That's my patch 
Um, so you begin to get an idea that I'll do whatever's in front of me. If there's something impossible, I'm your guy. Because all you have to do is tell me it's impossible and I'll figure out a way to do it. So programming that, um, that, uh, that bright road sound. And of course, Phil used it on everything. And then going on the road with Phil and doing a tour was great. Um, well, in engineering, uh, gratitude, were you actually on the road for any of that or was it all in studio? Yeah, it's four, there were four dates and it, Joe Wizard was a producer. So, uh, you know, I was there to be, to help communicate between Joe Wizard and the band because they, Joe was a great guy and he helped them get their, their deal. But he, he wasn't, he wasn't as soulful as some of the guys were hoping for. So I did, I did that recording that I do on the road. That was me recording and finishing the record and mixing it. It's just amazing that they, you know, topped their studio versions of songs like Reasons and Devotion, and they were just better. Well, and that was a lot of overdubbing. But by that time, they, they certainly knew the parts and could relax into the performance a little bit, a little bit better. And you also uh, worked with Average White Band for at least one record. Right? I did. And, and again, it was a great experience, more fun than A Barrel of Monkeys. And it was in that transition from Atlantic to Arista, and it just got buried. There were a couple of great cuts on there. They just got buried. But I got to be friends with the guys. I still see, uh, uh, what's his name, the drummer? Steve? Uh, yeah. Steve Ronnie. Steve Roney, he's a good guy. Man, they had some great stories. Uh, and the guitar player. Still running into the, yeah, running into uh, the Hamish has been on the show. Hamish was yeah. a great guy. He yeah. was a cool guy. And they're all smart as hell, you know? No, they were cool. Yeah, that record was uh, unfortunately got lost in the shuffle. Um, but you also uh, worked with Tower of Power, so you talk about I did a bunch of know, things with Tower of Power, premier horn sections, you know, and, EWF and Tower and of Power. And again, I I knew how to work with horns. I knew these guys. Doc was a friend for the longest time, and we did <coughs> the worst session I've ever done was uh, Tuesday night at the Rainbow in London with Little Feet and. All the guys were, every one of them was just wasted. Everybody was, Lowell was, had grabbed a stack of t-shirts. His, his wife had cut him off, wouldn't give him any money for drugs. So Lowell grabbed a stack of t-shirts, was out in the lobby selling t-shirts to get enough money to buy some, um, some blow. And they were all just completely wasted. And I had to come back to Los Angeles because Maurice demanded that I come back to Los Angeles and do this session. <coughs> so I had to cut short the, uh, the rainbow sessions for Little Feet. And by the way, that turned into a great record. But only after we redid a lot of it at a Lisner Auditorium in DC. And that turned into Waiting for Columbus, which is, you know, one of their, they're, 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 they're still talking about redoing it. We're talking about remixing that in Immersive. Mm -hmm. I don't know how we do that, but. They're talking. Well, how would you say that? Uh, you know, what did you do differently, if anything, for Tower of Power's horns versus the EWF horns? Did just about the same thing. So it's um, 
It was some kind of bright, small diaphragm mic on trumpets. I used KM84s, and I had, uh, I had modified them and be a little cleaner and to be able to take high levels. And uh, pretty much C12 on Doc, on Barry. And, uh, and, and, and another large diaphragm on Mimi and the saxes. Uh, but you know, just what I do. I would not use, I'd not use dynamic mics. So they were pretty impressed with that. Uh, Mimi's been on the show and he had some incredible stories about, you know, uh, altered substances and, you know, they've got some amazing stories in that band. And the last I ran into him, he was on, uh, he was on Saturday Night Live. He was the house band on Saturday Night Live. And for a long time, that was his lick, that high note at the top of the uh, intro. That was that was Mimi, I think, pretty sure. Sounded like Mimi. The trademark, yeah. Um, and then, um, you know, you've worked with so many uh, well-known singers. And how is your approach different when you're working with, you know, a, a solo artist versus a big group? Okay, well, any band is a nightmare. Anybody will tell you that. So working with Toto was probably the best experience. But even at that, you know, they they didn't always get along. And again, there was a lot of artificial substance in there. But they're, they're, we're still friends. I still talk to Lukather. And um, that, the, that Toto record actually is one of the better records I think I've done. Uh, it's called the seventh one. It had great Jeff Beccaro performances. I was a little put off by the lyric writing. I thought that they could have done better on lyrics. And on this one tune, I, I, I knew Jim, Jimmy Webb, and we asked if if Jimmy Webb could collaborate on the lyrics. And um, and I, and I was hoping Jimmy Webb would bring Jimmy Webb to it and not just try to, Jimmy Webb trying to make a Toto lyric happen. Uh, and I think Nico Bolas mixed that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mix that. Um, but uh, Bill and I, Bill Payne and I produced that. We, we, we got along really well in the studio. And it wasn't until the third Little Feet record that Bill and I decided that, that it would be better if we didn't work anymore. But we've been back in touch. We did a bunch of stuff. We did a couple movies. We did this. Bill and I and Russ Kunkel did a heartburn where we sat in the studio with uh, Mike Nichols for six weeks and just heard every story worth telling <laughs> about Hollywood. <laughs> How long does it typically take for you to, you know, connect with a uh, artist or a band and feel like you've got a rapport and you can like really give honest feedback and maybe critique things and Well, it depends. Uh, most of the time, I, I practice what I preach is, it's not your record, it's their record. You're there to listen to their ideas and interpret their ideas and, and be the interface with technology. And actually, one of the things that you, you kind of miss these days is, since musicians can go directly to Pro Tools and make their own noise, uh, that that they aren't as 
when, I don't want to use the word creative, but they're not as discerning as I would be in that situation where I'd be hoping to do a little bit of research before settling on a sound. Total, we would spend days getting drums right. And I think that was, that was the style in the 70s before, 70s and 80s, uh, before big business took over the production of music. Production of music changed in 1991, where the companies were being bought and sold. There was a lot of money around. And A&R people, real music people, kind of disappeared in their place were these accountants that sort of pretended that they were A&R people and would insinuate themselves on the mix and the production. And it was a bad time to be alive. Idiots. And most of them have gone back to real estate or used car lots. Some of them are still around. They, they really didn't survive because they didn't bring anything. They didn't bring anything to, uh, to a record. So, I mean, I did a couple of those in Nashville. Built this great studio in Nashville, open to the biggest yawns you could ever imagine. Nobody knew what to make of it, but it was a great studio. And now it's been repurposed for immersive mixing. It's a Blackbird Studio C. And it's just one of the most amazing places to listen to music. And musicians could hear them, themselves in this room. It was so diffuse that, that the, the walls didn't have the traditional comb filtering coming off the walls and blurring sounds. It's a great room. So now, you, now I can't get into it. It's an immersive mix room, and I can't even get in. Um, I never owned it. John McBride owned it, Martina's husband. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.